Okay, well, let's get started. Uh, my name is Seth Partner. This is the Call In Shots podcast on the Call In app. I am joined today by uh, the wonderful Mirren Fader. Mirren, how are you? Hey, I'm good. Thank you for having me. So uh, the number one reason I wanted to have you on is because uh, um, you you interviewed me for a book. <laughs> so <I wanted> to, <laughs> um, and so I wanted to uh, wanted to talk about that. Uh, of course, I'm referring to your, your book, Giannis uh, uh, and, and Tenekumbo, the uh, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher the, uh, the improbable rise of an NBA MVP, which came out just over six months ago now. So, oh my god, yeah, I know, right? That's, that's crazy. But yes, thank you for doing that. <laughs> so I, it, it, it's it's always you know having having gone to a team and then come back out. It's always interesting to have one's workplace reported on. Um, uh, and, and so I, 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 this is, this is a little bit surreal in that way, but I just wanted to chat with you, what you, what, what you kind of learned in the process of writing that book, what you, you took away from Giannis himself and kind of the journey of in becoming a star in the NBA. I mean, what I really appreciated was how, um, how many more obstacles there were to go through than I guess previously known. I think there was just such a gap in knowledge between everything that happened pre-NBA. I think the only thing we knew was like he sold trinkets on the street and just talking with so many people that knew him, grew up with him, were best friends with him and and his family, of course. Um, It just painted such a different picture than this like fairy tale where somebody transcends all these negative things. There was so much more racism than you know, ever uncovered. Um, and, and honestly, his first year in the league, he was painted as this really happy go lucky, um, charming person. And of course, all those things are true, but he was also having a tough time. So I, I just appreciated learning that, no, there was actually a, a lot more struggles that this person had to, you know, contend with to get to where he is. Yeah, no, there was, I mean, the, the whole, the whole, I just had my first smoothie kind of, kind of thing. It was, you know, a lot of it was was somewhat infantilizing. Exactly. And what I thought was interesting was a lot of the people that worked for the Bucks during that time that I talked to were like, no, we were very conscious of that. We didn't want him to come across as, you know, in a patronizing way. I thought that was really interesting because I remember all the content that I saw really tried to play up that childish sort of demeanor. And, you know, I don't know the language. And so I, I just thought it was interesting that, um, to see them reflect on that and, you know, admit that they were conscious of that. The interesting thing about that from my perspective is um, he was obviously, he was very young and, and he came into the league before I worked for the Bucks. So I don't have firsthand knowledge of, of direct knowledge of sort of his, uh, his personality at the time, but I have seen other young players come in and I don't really think there's that much difference in terms of sort of the actual day-to-day sort of naivete, but people who kind of come up through the American system are so used to, especially now in, in you know, the, the, the sort of the Instagram era of, of uh, you know, chronicling one's AAU exploits and stuff like that. Um, play, most players are more, I guess, digitally savvy, if not actually life savvy uh, when they get to the NBA. It's definitely true. I also think, because they are digitally savvy and they're used to this era of just getting so much hype from a young age, they've been accustomed to always playing in, you know, really hyped venues and tournaments with all these eyes on them. And, you know, Giannis 
never really had those types of conditions, especially at a young age. He wasn't even playing the sport yet. So I think it was really interesting that, you know, he like the Bradley Center was so decrepit and he was like, I love this place. <laughs> it's so great. You know, like he, he just had no conception of, of the real conditions that a lot of, you know, up and coming stars uh, have. I'm going to stand up for the Bradley Center was was <laughs> the 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 main. The, the, the main way it was, I mean, the, the like as as gleaming and beautiful as Pfizer form is, and it's great. Um, I think it was more of a business side decrepit than it was from a play basketball here uh, true, true. side. I'm gonna, I'm gonna um, walk that back. All yeah. the all the fans that I <laughs> talked to, it's a very special place. I, I, I loved one person I spoke to nearly named her dog Bradley. <laughs> I will say our practice facility though. Oh, um, yeah. Did you yeah. did you get it? Did you get a chance in in because uh, by the time you were writing this, we we had been in the, the the new facility for a couple of years. But did you ever get a chance to visit the old facility? For those that don't know, uh, up until twenty the summer of twenty seventeen, uh, the Bucks practiced at a place called the Cousin Center, which is basically a converted basement in an old seminary school that is like the farthest thing. Yeah, like. You know, it's, it's, you know, maybe looks like an office park and somehow it's, it's, you know, an NBA team lives here. Yeah, no, I never actually stepped foot in it, but it was a big point of research for me to have everyone describe how creepy it was. You know, you would hear noises. I mean, it was described to me as basically haunted. Um, you would go into different hallways and it would be dark. And even the team chef that got hired that year that was there through, I think, the 2021 season all the way up till that point, he was like, we had to sanitize everything. I had to figure out how to cook in this old place. You know, it's just that's the type of rust and uh, strange conditions they had there. But it was, you know, I mean, there there was really awesome things about it, too. There were the priests that were playing you know, three on three before practice. And I interviewed a lot of them for the book. There was just really charming um, sort of small market things about that place that gave it character. How much did you, how much did you get to talk to, to his family? I basically, so when this started, I did a profile on him and his brother, Alex in 2019. I pretty much spent the whole day with them. So I interviewed Giannis, uh, his brothers, and his mom. Um, so that was like the full day there. And then I didn't start to do the book until like a year later, March 2020. And right before, right around that time, which was right before the world shut down, I got to interview the brothers again, all of them again. Um, and then the world shut down. And so that was my final interviews with them. But I just had hours of tape and so many things that didn't make this, the original story. Um, which is kind of why I wanted to do the book. I felt like there was so much left on the cutting room floor that didn't make the 4,000-ish word piece. Um, so I was definitely grateful for that and for the follow-ups. Is that where the, the, the kind of the idea of doing uh, the book came from was, was out, of, out of doing that feature? Or did you already have a mind sort of on that um, yeah. when, when you're doing that feature? You know, I really didn't even think about it until after the feature. I didn't even know that Giannis was going to be there that day. It was pure luck. Um, I really just wanted to profile Alex because when I was at um, Bleacher Report, they were very big on, you know, who's the next young prospect. And I just thought, wow, like how interesting to be the fourth, how much pressure might be on Alex. I genuinely just wasn't even thinking I'd even talk to Giannis. And 
I was just in their house and he showed up and it was serendipity. And the more I talked with Giannis, the more I realized the story was about him as much as it was Alex. And you can't talk about Alex without talking about Giannis. So it, it just kind of morphed into a family story rather than, you know, a story on an individual member of the family. And, you know, up at that point, so that was 2019, I had submitted a couple of book proposals for other topics that didn't really get much attention. Um, I just kind of kept hearing the same feedback from agents and, um, you know, publishers that like, this is a great idea. I just don't think it'll sell, you know, with books as, you know, I'm sure you know from all your experience, they want the things that are going to um, reach a certain audience and, and sell a certain amount. And so um, fortunately, I did meet an agent that said, you know, I'd have an open door if I have any ideas. And so when this uh, story came out and it got so much attention, um, because it really showed a more vulnerable side of Giannis rather than just, wow, look at his athleticism. You know, it was about who he is as a person, really. Um, I sent it to the agent. I was like, could this be the book? And he agreed it was a good idea. Sure. No, I, 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 I was, I was fortunate enough in my, in my own book that, that it was more of the publisher came to me with, Hey, come up with an idea and we'll, we'll publish it rather than having to go the other way around of, of having to like come up with ideas, which is, you know, as, as you know, it's always the hardest part. Like the, the blank sheet yes. paper is, <laughs> is always the, the most challenging. Um, now, obviously you're the, the book was written, um, in, in, lar- in almost wholly in, in before, you know, he, the, the championship season, yeah. I imagine. Um, but did you, through your reporting, your interviews, what did you sort of learn about, um, you know, his development as both a player and, uh, a person? I mean, obviously I have, you know, I have the almost too close to it perspective of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm very interested in terms of what you felt that, that, that you, you came to know about that process that you didn't know before. Yeah, well, I will say I did end up doing um, an extra chapter and epilogue about the championship run, which will be in the paperback coming out in a couple of weeks. But um, the thing that I really loved learning about was the development of Giannis as a leader in terms of uh, his voice. So, you know, in the Jason Kidd era, he didn't really he was kind of quiet, didn't really want to speak up he proved that he was an alpha type figure in how hard he competed and how much he would push himself and his teammates in practice. Like he wanted to be that guy, but he just wasn't comfortable assuming the vocal leadership that that required. And it was fascinating to see the kind of development of him opening up a bit more as the years went on and little glimmers of him sort of, you know, riling his teammates together while still remaining true to himself, he's never going to be a rah-rah guy, but there are certainly moments that you saw in this last run where he's yelling at them on the bench. He's like getting the troops together and you would just never see that around 2015, 2016. Um, And I think he's just worked so hard to adapt his game, you know, very conscious of, you know, what others perceive to be his weaknesses as, but I I don't know. I, I just think he, he's come a really long way in being comfortable with who he is. Like he's improved every year, but he's also going to remain true to what makes him so good, um, which is coming downhill and and doing what he does. So, um, and also just being a tremendous defender and passer, like things that people don't really talk about as much, the IQ, the passing, like he's just, he's so smart. He's just so, um, he's just so awesome to play with. So I, I really enjoyed learning about the basketball side too. 
I'll say from my perspective, that was, that was a, a, it's something that, that really um, was, was kickstarted by when, when Mike Budenholzer became the coach. I mean, I think that, that everyone probably by now has, has seen the stories about like the squares on the court. Um, right. And as much as anything, I think that was, that was just to help him have a little bit of a, like a frame of reference to sort of mentally model the court. And then, and then that really helped him kind of like start to anticipate and, and read where players were going to be. Um, and, and, and just having that, that reference and, and, you know, they, they did that for a season um, and then moved on to sort of other markings on the court, but just that kind of, kind of, okay, now I understand the framework and, and, right. and, and, you know, given person is going to be going to be in a certain spot when I do something uh, or not. And if it's something else is happening, then I, then I know kind of what to do anyway. Um, so I thought that that was a, um, uh, you know, it's, it's a, we, you learn different things from different people. And I thought that that change came at a very uh, good point for him in his development. Yeah. And that's something that I feel like people don't talk about enough with him is the coachability and the adaptability, like to have three different head coaches and have your first one be canned so quickly after you got adapted to him with that being Larry Drew after that first season, you know, he's had like multiple staffs multiple different systems with different messages. I mean, he he is a professional in in the utmost sense in that regard. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, so who are some of the, like, if you can name names, go ahead. But if not, who are some of the sort of the more interesting types of people you got stories from uh, in the process of, of, uh, of, of putting the book together? Oh my God. My favorite is um, Raman Rana, who was his best friend growing up, one of his best friends growing up. And, you know, it, he came really late in the picture. I'd been trying to find him for months um, because the, the hard part about this book is you can't just Google Giannis's childhood friends. Like this reporting doesn't exist. So it was a lot of talking with, you know, a coach. Oh, can you send me the roster? Who was on that team? Who was his neighbor? All these things. And so everyone kept leading me to this guy, uh, Raman. And um, what I appreciated about him was it was a window into just a lot of the discrimination that Giannis faced as as a child. Um, Rahman is of Pakistani descent, and so they really bonded as being outsiders. Um, and I, I just thought that was just such an important interview. I interviewed him multiple times. Um, my other favorite interview was Josh Oppenheimer, um, who ironically became an assistant coach again with the Bucks. When I interviewed him, he, he wasn't in the NBA, but... He was and still is Giannis's, you know, right-hand guy. And I just love talking with him because he's the one that saw Giannis go through all those struggles that we talked about, especially earlier in his NBA career that people don't know about and the loneliness that Giannis felt. Um, I think that Josh really has so much to offer and um, it was really cool to see him come back onto the staff. So I think those were my two favorite people. So let me see. Um, I think that that's that's almost a natural transition um, to some of the some of your uh, the things you've excuse me been writing about you know, over the last season or so at the Ringer. Um, especially, I mean, obviously you're covering multiple sports, but um, in terms of your of your basketball profiles recently, I was I was saying this before we we got on got on we started recording. Uh, you have a type, it seems, that is the, the kind of player that you're drawn to. Um, whether it's, it's, you know, earlier in the year, you profiled Austin Reeves, uh, 
you know, uh, uh, Emmanuel Quickly, um, and even the DeMarta Rosen piece. It seems like there is a, a certain, um, the, the certain amount of, of, of kind of adversity that, that you're drawn to in, in, in choosing your stories. Um, is that, is, is that sort of just a happenstance of, you know, a couple, couple, three or four pieces over the course of a, of a year, or is that, is that something you're noticing when, when figuring out which stories kind of ping your interest? I mean, I think it's definitely part of it. Um, I don't think it's all of it, but I think for sure it, it more so interests me on the journey of how somebody got to where they are. And I think naturally a lot of people that compete at this level and have to perform at this level have gone through a lot of adversity. I just find that so interesting. You know, how did you get from there to here? I, it's really hard for me to write 4,000, 5,000 words on somebody who everything has gone right and they're just amazing at basketball. You know, Jabari um, Smith, the profile I did um, to uh, like last month, I guess, you know, it was an interesting profile, but he didn't really have much adversity in his life to overcome. I, I didn't think it was as interesting as, you know, say a DeMar DeRozan, but I definitely look for people that have a, a certain drive, a certain work ethic. Um, people where life was not handed to them. Um, I, I just think those types of stories are really interesting because we really only as a, I don't know, as a media, we like to flock to success. Um, we like to talk about who has the most value, who's scoring the most, who's shooting the highest percentage. But I, I found some of my most rewarding stories to be on people that were not successful or people that were battling failure. And so I think for me as somebody that really wants to write really compelling, deep human interest features, I think adversity is just naturally going to be part of that process and sort of bringing out those personalities. Yeah. I, uh, I, I had uh, Nate Jones, who's uh, of, of, of the Goodwin agency who, who, who works with, uh, has worked with the Martyrs in the past uh, on, on kind of the endorsement side of that of things. And when he was on, he was, he was sort of talking about, that you know there's 450 500 players in the nba and that's for the most part like 450 or 500 really interesting unique stories of uh, at least at some point overcoming something to just to get to this level um there are certainly you know there might be you know a couple dozen players in the league for whom everything has just always come easy and there hasn't been any adversity but um i think that's the exception rather than the rule I think that's so true. And the thing is, is that um, it further endears the player to their fans to know what they've gone through. I think like we're at a real flashpoint in terms of sports media. Like what are we covering? What kinds of stories are we writing? Moving away from storytelling. But I, I just think it's so valuable and you can get so much from learning about what somebody has gone through. It, it almost makes you identify them and identify with them, excuse me, and, and feel almost like a universal kinship, which is crazy. Like, you know, so many people reached out about the DeMar DeRozan thing saying, I so relate to him. And how is that possible? So many of the people that reached out to me have nothing in common with DeMar on the surface. Like, how would you relate to him when you grew up completely different? But it's because of the universal themes of DeMar's story that people, you know, found to be interesting. So I just think there's just so much potential for storytelling in the NBA in particular. And at a moment when we're so interested in like the culture around surrounding basketball, we should also 
be talking about the people that drive it. You know, it's there's so many stories about owners and sources and GMs. So it's like, who's on the court? You know, that's I just enjoy that so much more, you know? Yeah, no. And I think I mean, the I, I mean, I certainly agree that the there's something very un, universal about about the, the Rosen story. And, and I think we'll get back to that in a second. But the, the other thing is, is just for a player who has been relatively prominent for a long time and and certainly he was in canada for a while so you know raptors fans will always you know tell us oh no one pays attention to us but he's he's someone who's been relatively prominent in the league for a long time um just to find a a sort of a learn something new about them um was was uh i mean i i you know, I, I've certainly learned a lot about DeMar DeRozan that I hadn't known before. And, and, you know, this is this has been my professional life for the last nearly a decade. So. Right. Well, that's the thing. It's like these stars are everywhere, but we don't really know them. And I never want to say, oh, I know them, even if I know their deepest, darkest traumas, because I think there's boundaries that, you know, as a writer, you can know those things, but you'll never truly know a person. But having said all that, I just think that um, – there's so much to uncover. There was so much about DeMar that didn't even make the piece. And I think um, we're, look at Luca. We know like nothing about him. Like really think about it. Like, do you know, you know how good he is. You know how good he can be. You sort of know the loose outline of like, yeah, he grew up amazing. And then he went here and there, but you don't really like know him, right? Like, do you know what he's like, what he, um, what that drive looks like up close? Like we don't. The same thing with Joker, like a lot of these people, and especially Giannis up to this point, we didn't really know anything. And I think my job is like, how can I tell a person's story so that by the time you finish it, you have a sense of what this person's like? I'll, I'll pitch a story to you uh, live on air right now along those lines for a player who like the estimation of them both in the public. And it seems throughout the league is sort of uh, very divorced from, you know, how good they are. It's Rudy Gobert. Yeah. Oh, I, mean, I know. I, I mean, no, it's, a good one. It, it seems like he is for whatever reason. And there are, there, there, I think there are some of them that are obvious and some that are less. So he is not well liked. Right. By, right. And, and um, I just wonder why that is like, you know, people, it was very interesting when he, a couple of years ago, when he didn't make the all-star team, the last right. year he didn't make the all-star team. And he was very upset about this. And people were kind of clowning him for them. I was like, right. of course, why wouldn't he be upset? I don't, I don't understand the, 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 I mean, I guess I understand the urge of social media, but I just don't understand like why that would surprise people. I know that's such a good idea. And it goes back way, like you mentioned, it, it goes back way before the COVID microphone thing. I think people use that as a flashpoint, but it, it was there before there was resentment before. Um, that's a good idea. I mean, I always think about this, like, I'm, I'm not calling Rudy a villain, but, you know, profiling villains, like I, I tried to um, profile uh, Andrew Bynum. And it was a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> it was a disaster. I couldn't find one positive thing, like from people to say about him. And it just makes me feel a certain way. Um, does everyone misunderstand him? Or is this how he is? How can you really know? You know, I'm an outsider, by definition, I'm a reporter, I'm flying into a world that I don't know. But there are certainly some profiles that are easier, you know, 221 interviews for Giannis, not one negative thing to say about him. But I think that there would still be um, something to gleam from a profile that is about somebody that is not universally beloved. I think those stories matter as well. So 
hey, maybe I'll pick that one up again. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I, so to get back to the, to again the the Rosen point, something that uh, you said, and this is something that 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 a few people I think are focusing more on, and and uh, obviously you and I think Katie Heindel is another one who's who is is you know there's sort of the notion that hey, you're rich and famous, what could possibly be wrong? Right. And, you know, and I've, I, I'm not going to name names, but I witnessed people with the bucks who were making a lot of money and they were starting on the court. And it was pretty obvious that, that the experience of their lives sucked at the moment. Yes. And I I think, and I, I just, I, I think that's hard for people to understand, but get a better sense of, of the person. And I think, you know, and, and that's, that's, it's going beyond even something, you know, not even from a sort of a mental illness standpoint, but just like, like this sucks. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm paid X number of millions a year to do this and it's going terribly. This sucks. Like, uh, I, I just, I, I wish there was, I wish there was a better way to make people understand that, that even with the money, like the experience of it isn't all sunshine and roses. I really don't understand why we can't grasp this because it's, it's unbelievable to me. It is so plausible because I know from talking with millionaires that they can be ostensibly so um, successful and be so lonely on the inside. Like when I was in Australia with Lamella Ball and he was like, people just look at me like I'm a dollar sign. It was the saddest thing I ever heard. I mean, it really, it hurts. Like it hurt him that he was aware that people view him as a commodity, you know? So I think like maybe I just haven't, a more insider view and have more empathy because I've talked with them. But I think there is such a a gap in empathy and I wish that it didn't exist. I mean, I don't think there's a single person on this planet that has not felt lonely or sad or felt like they disappointed themselves or other people. And so why would it be any different with an athlete? They're literally just people. Um, think about your most overwhelmed moment. You've got a million texts and emails and personal crises, professional crises to deal with. Think about an NBA player who is famous, who has like 300 text messages an hour. Like think about their emotions, you know? So I just think we, we all need to try more empathy. Um, money is not everything. And I think for a lot of these people, part of the issue is that the perception is that they're supposed to be happy all the time, almost compounds the pain there's nothing worse when people don't understand that you are suffering and they don't validate that suffering i think damar it was fascinating to me that all of these things kind of came crashing down when he was at the height of his fame it was at all-star in la everything was supposed to be great and it's like no he's a human being he was struggling too and um i know i'm rambling but what i really appreciated about what i took away from that piece and what i hope people take away is that um, mental health, uh, depression, all these things that are really tough to deal with aren't things to overcome. He had the best quote. He was like, it doesn't work like that. And so I think it just, if we reframe our understanding of these issues through Damar's eyes, we'll have a better empathy and compassion for how, you know, all people face these types of issues. I think that's right. Um, and yeah, I mean, the other thing, and this is also, it's a little bit of a, of, of a workplace thing. I think I sent you an article um, when we were talking about setting this yes. up about, about um, sort of a part of, you know, not to venture too far away from, from sports ball, but 
what we already are, so why not? But you know, part of the uh, you know a, a thing that's come up about sort of what's being termed the Great Resignation is the idea that that people are um, not running away from, but choosing to leave environments where like there's like moral injury, like they're being asked to do things that they don't they don't think anyone should be being asked to do. Um, and and again, I think that's that's something that that is goes beyond sort of sports, but it's certainly very pleasant, pleasant in sports. I mean, you, we don't go more than two weeks without there being some report of you know some kind of workplace something in a in a sports you know organization or front office. Um, so I, I mean, I think it's you know, and I, and I think we we've seen it in like video gaming and obviously entertainment and and stuff like that. I just I. I I, I sort of hope that these stories coming out all help to illustrate that, you know, for as as much, you know, the money and fame or whatever, it's still a job and the things that make a job satisfying still matter. And money is only part of it. Absolutely. I mean, so well put, like you touched on so many points that I think are important, but number one is I think just recognizing like this is a job. Like earlier today, I um, I saw a clip that um, Bleacher Report posted about, um, it was a video of the Lakers players responding to fans heckling them and saying things. And like, yeah, I know the Lakers are terrible. I know this season is awful. I know all those things, but like, can you imagine how that feels to have fans say you're a piece of shit, blah, blah, blah. Like it's still, like they're still humans this is still a job. Like I, I just, I, I think we all need a critical reframing of um, just respecting other human beings, um, no matter how they perform or don't perform on the court. And, you know, in our industry as well, like there's been so much movement, um, whether it's people voluntarily leaving or not. Um, I just think that we are having like a collective, um, crisis slash conversation about mental health and how that intersects with work and how can bosses have more compassion for those that work for them while also, you know, creating a nurturing environment where they feel comfortable sharing those things. You know, Damar and his relationship with Popovich was really beautiful to see. Like he felt comfortable talking about these things with Popovich because Popovich created an environment where he respects his players and understands that mental health is a legit issue that people face. And he doesn't, uh, you know, make fun of it or feel like it's something to be ashamed of. So therefore his players feel comfortable, you know, talking about those things again, like that's a, that's a great workplace. So I think all these things are completely related to athletics. So you just can't separate them. I, so I've long held a theory about, about Greg Popovich that I'll try out on you and see if, if you buy this. Um, okay. So I, I, you know, I, I played division three basketball for a couple of years and, and Greg Popovich got his, his, his coaching start in division three basketball. I think that prepared him much better to be, uh, an NBA coach than sort of the standard pathway because he was in an environment. He was, he was coaching at a academically rigorous institution. Um, and you know, the, the college I went to was academically rigorous and it's a different dynamic when kind of much like the NBA, you need the players as much or more than they need you. And I feel like even though it's sort of at the very different end of like the talent spectrum, I, I've always felt that that experience primed him well to be able to, as you say, relate to players as people first. 
I 100% agree. And um, shout out to the Sky at conference because I'm an Occidental grad, so I'm very familiar with the pop tree and, <laughs> and Pomona. And um, I, I covered, you know, my D3 school and um, there's just a different level of compassion. I think you're right. Um, and I wonder if, you know, Bud coming from that same program and, and level um, can, can sort of be fruitful as well. But I, I definitely think that sets the table for, for Popovich. And you know, I wish people would talk about those things more. Like, I, I think your argument is is very strong. Um, it shouldn't be so hard, right? Thinking of athletes as people. But again, like, I, I was a basketball player. And I remember my coaches used to say, like, you know, when you walk through this door, like, you know, leave those problems at the door. And it's such a stupid way of uh, thinking. I can't leave everything at the door. I'm human. Like, I can't just compartmentalize like that. Like, there needs to be... Um, uh, more understanding. I will say, I think there's progress. The fact that we're having a conversation about this, I don't think this kind of dialogue existed 10 years ago, but there's obviously a lot of room to grow. I mean, look at the Ben Simmons discourse. It's so bad. It's just so bad. I don't even know how to, I don't think we're, we're just not prepared for that conversation. I mean, that's, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot going on there that makes it, that makes it a very, that's, you know, it's the expression that hard cases make for bad law. Yeah, and yeah. you know, and there's there there are aspects of the Ben Simmons story that that you know, I guess in in sticking the legal ter- terminology, make him an unsympathetic plaintiff, but that doesn't yeah. mean he wasn't injured, and that doesn't mean that he's not a person that right. also is worthy of respect and you know treated with compassion, even if you think he's the worst player or did Philly this wrong or this or that. I mean, at the end of the day, he is a human being. It's just, it's all in the phrasing, you know? Um, I guess I want to move on to something else after this, but the last question is, this kind of occurred to me because uh, you've sort of touched on similar things. You, you just mentioned, you know, leave that at the door. Um, mm-hmm. I think that this is actually a, a, a point that, that might be worth exploring, you know, in broader terms is, um, and this is, this is a, a, a a friend of mine who who works in in kind of the sort of player development, player relations area, has has told me multiple times is that that's actually hard for NBA players, um, not because there's too much in the outside world, but because so much of kind of the everyday stuff has been almost taken off of their plate to allow them to quote unquote focus more, that there isn't like there isn't just like run of the mill everyday activities that they can do that they can then put aside to, to kind of go to work, if that makes sense. And that, and I think that contributes almost to like, it almost uh, essentializes the basketball portion of themselves, which means if the basketball isn't going well and that's all you are, that means you not just you're, 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 you're playing bad or are a bad player, but you are bad. And I think it, I think that in the effort to make things easier, you're maybe making like reducing the uh, resiliency of, of these players as people. I mean, that's really interesting. I think, um, I think that goes back to the Harvard article that you were mentioning earlier is this conflation with work being your identity and how much of it is your identity. You know, we all have to work 40 plus hours a week. So it's a lot of our time. Um, NBA players, it's like a million fold. It's travel, it's this, it's, so it becomes your your whole identity, and I think that there's a problem in making your work your whole identity. Um, you know, I always say to myself, "You are not your work. 
You know, it's important to you, but you are not your work. You're a person. I don't think NBA players um, have that luxury. <laughs> it's that's easy. It's, it's much easier to say than to than to do. Um, exactly. But that's why I think that's a universal struggle. I might not relate to the way that it applies to Damar, who has to do his job a trillion hours a day. But I do think that's something that we're all trying to figure out. How do we untangle our work selves from our personal selves? And um, it's just made worse, I think, as you get older. Um, when you're young, you're just playing, you're having fun. It's not your whole identity. Your friends are there. Yes, it's a big social thing, but it's not what it becomes, which is a total business. Um, I've always wanted to profile a, an NBA player that absolutely hates his job. I'll never be able to do it because then said player will lose his job. But I, I guarantee you there's guys that do not, absolutely do not care at all, wish they <laughs> were doing something else. I, I'll um, give you some names after we stop <laughs> recording and, and, and suggest yeah. that you... Can you imagine like having to be a professional basketball player when you hate basketball and you're over it and it's just mundane of doing this every single second of your whole life? Like that is interesting to me. That is interesting. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there are people who, you know, go through the motions at every job. Right. Um, and, and by the way, it doesn't mean that they aren't working in like in sort of any sort of absolute terms that they aren't working really hard. Right. Um, because exactly you get it, like the level of competition is such that you get embarrassed pretty fast if, if you're not, but exactly. You just don't like it. You don't want to do it anymore, yeah. but you can't cause that's your whole career and that's how you make your money. That fascinates me. How do you do that when it, when you're approach it like that again, how do you, how do you be a normal human being? Like so many of us, you know, <laughs> I mean, that's, I mean, frankly, that's a, that's a, that's a, that would be an interesting approach to, you know, maybe, Maybe you're almost suggesting a framing, but that would be an interesting approach to the to the Ben Simmons story. Um, yeah, because I think there's um, again, regardless of what you think about it, there was something about that situation, and you know, I think we can we can speculate as to causes and and burdens of blame and everything else, but there were um, there was plenty of things that just made him say, "I don't wanna." Yeah, you know, I have no idea. I'll just tell you, I would give my left foot for that profile. And I've been trying to do it for a while now. Um, I just think that is, I just think being an empathetic sort of journalist that um, listens and is there to understand someone's story better, like I would absolutely kill for that story. Maybe one day. Have you ever, have you ever thought about, um, Another sort of weird uh, piece of of kind of this life is sort of the uh, the career assistant coach. Like I don't know that that's, that's probably a hard sell for an article, but it seems like in terms of the stories they could tell and sort of that existence, the, the, some of those like the, those things, those un, sort of unseen people or people you see. Oh, that's the guy who sits next to. So and so on the bench. Well, I wonder what his what what his deal is. I a hundred percent have, and I've tried it before. The thing is that a lot of NBA teams don't let their assistants talk. Uh, that's changed in the last five years. Like six six seven years ago, I interviewed a Celtics assistant coach, like casually, um, like on the uh, the sideline before a game, and now you couldn't do it. 
So I think it's frustrating because they have incredible stories <laughs> that collective sigh. Um, no, that's that, that's this is this is my what are we doing here sigh. I, I just I know, and and it's it really frustrates me. Assistant coaches are the ones that are really plugged into the players. Like I said, Josh Oppenheimer. I don't know if that book gets done without him. Um, they are the ones with the stories, and also it is so damn hard to become a head coach in this league. Um, there are career assistant coaches that just cannot break through. And I want to know if that kills them every day or are they comfortable being where they are? Um, again, that everyone in this league has ambition. Okay. I don't care what people say. Everybody wants to be something. And um, I don't know. I'm just, I've tried it and I've gotten thwarted by so many PR staffs that aren't into it. And um, it's, it's just really frustrating. Once again, big stuff. <laughs> I hear you. No, it's, again, I mean, this is something, this is, this is, this is a kick I've been on, especially since the all-star break when, you know, I think that, that Adam Silver's frankly kind of ill-considered remarks about kind of locker room access. Um, it's, it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a, like, just from a business standpoint, it's like, Hey, we want to give you our attention. No, 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 we don't want that. We don't need that. It's just, I don't, I don't I like, again, what are we doing here? It's, they, it's, they don't, sorry to interrupt you. Go ahead. No, go ahead. They, they don't understand that what we do actually benefits players. Um, you brought up Nate Jones. He had the best tweet concerning this. Um, there is a role for media to play and it actually does benefit them if they don't understand it now, but it does in the sense of, you know, without the, the reporting, the, the beat writers being in there talking to the seventh man, the eighth man, uh, even revealing glimmers of the superstar that nobody knows before when you don't have that type of storytelling and, and that reporting, all you get is just trade rumors and um, first take barking at each other. Like that's what we're heading towards. And I think that the comments just further really solidified that. And I think um, there's so much beauty in real reporting and storytelling that uh, is so important. And um, yeah, it's just, yeah. <laughs> this, I mean, this, I mean, I don't know. We're getting far, far afield now, but it seems like this is this is <laughs> no. This I, I feel like this is sort of why like sports writing seems like it almost grew up around baseball because baseball lends itself so well to these sort of long narrative arcs that you don't even need necessarily the people for. But the part, but the the thing that like makes people fans is. Yeah, it's it's the spectacular. It's the you know the, the spectacle, but it's also the, the the part that really like grabs people and embeds them is this this connection, this knowing the stories. Look, and look just, at John. It, oh, go ahead. No, please. I'm so sorry. I'm I'm gonna get better no, no. at that with the audio. But um, look at John Moran. Okay, yes, like you love his his incredible electrifying plays, but. Like when I think of John Morant, I think of his dad being his first hater. And I think of how we've latched onto that. Um, again, where does that come from? That comes from storytelling. Um, you know, when, I, when I'm when i thinking about um, DeMar's mid-range and all these things that we're watching, I'm like thinking of all the shit that this guy went through to get to that place. Um, when I'm thinking of Damian Lillard, I don't just think about um, his 
magnetic plays in the playoffs. I'm also thinking about like, oh, by the way, he likes music. Like I'm thinking of all these other dimensions of him. And again, like where do these other dimensions come from? You can just say, well, the player can post about his music on his Instagram. Sure, he can. But I think that there is something so beneficial about a, a story that talks to all the people around the person as well and gives further insight into like what that person is like. And you, you just kind of don't get that without, you know, narratives. You correct me if I'm wrong. You, you blurbed Emily Adrian's book. Didn't you? I did. Yeah. yeah. Actually I had her on last week. Um, oh, nice. I, it's, I, 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 I think, I think the, the, the book is wonderful. Um, uh, it's, uh, it, it, it tickled me, uh, that, that there's, uh, the, the, the small college that, uh, that, that is referred to in the book is actually the one I went to school because her husband, <laughs> her husband went there. Um, nice. but, uh, <laughs> um, no, but I think that, that like the, I, I feel like that that book is, would be just so useful for, and for, for folks who haven't read the book is called the second season. And it's a, it's a sort of a fictionalized, um, almost uh, a Doris Burke novel, I guess is yeah. the best way to put it. Um, uh, but just the, the way in which like recognizable NBA things are woven into just a fascinating, not just the main story, but all these other things that are going on in the book and why those are the things that people care about. Like th th these aren't like even just divorcing it from the reality of the, the current NBA and a fictionalized version. It was like, Oh, that's really compelling. We should lean into that. Yeah, I love that book. Like, for example, you know, the clip um, when Doris starts dribbling down court, like, and we all are like, damn, she has handles, blah, blah, blah. Then you read the book and you're like, oh, oh my God, like how hard she worked to get those handles or, okay, how does she balance motherhood and, and you know, traveling a million days a year? What's going on with her? Like, Doris is a fascinating human being. Like, I would love to do a book on her you know and i think the novel is such a prime example of why people are hungry for their those stories you know um like every time every time joker makes an insane pass and we all post the clip and we're like oh my god this guy's insane i all i always say to myself okay how come i literally know nothing about him i know some things i know the horse i know the brothers but i don't I don't really know anything. And part of that is his choice. He doesn't want to do media. He reminds me a lot of, a lot of Giannis. But there's just so much potential. And, and I don't think we're maximizing the storytelling we could for this tremendous league. We're just not. <sighs> Big sigh. Again. <laughs> uh, there's, 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 I mean, there's really, there's really no other way to put it. Um, so, I mean, without asking me to give anything away, what, what kinds of, what kinds of, uh, of, of stories are you kind of picking away at now? And actually, let me ask you about that. Is that, is, do you, how does, I know nothing about feature writing. Like, how do you, are you working on multiple at once or is it one thing for, you know, a month, six weeks, two months or something like that? And then on to the next. Yeah, I'm usually working on about three at one time. Um, I think it helps me because, when you get so obsessed with one topic, it's really hard. I know you probably feel me on the book because that's what it's like <laughs> with the book. <laughs> um, but um, speaking of speaking of your, you not being your work, uh, right. writing, writing a book will make I, that. Yeah. Why do you think I had that quote ready for you? Like I yeah. know exactly this issue. I face it myself. But um, yeah, I um, I have something coming up um, that uh, I can't say what it is, but it's uh, it's a women's basketball feature um, for the pick for the NCAA tournament. So I'm excited about that. 
A um, couple others um, cannot sort of say what they're about, but I'm really excited because uh, one of them potentially might be podcast, um, but it's a new challenge for me um, trying to get this story, but also think of how it might lend itself um, in an audio sense. Um, but I think for me, you always want to pitch stories that can land at a timely moment. Like I, I think people think, oh, the internet, it just has a calendar that you can just publish anything, anytime, but it's actually not that simple. When you publish something, you want to get the most, you know, eyes on it and maximize timing. And so I always try to think of what are stories that involve somebody that is having a moment or about to have a moment? How can we put this out when they are literally about to be in their moment? Um, and the other thing is is working towards that second book. So I'm super excited about that as well. I want to do this as long as I can. <laughs> do you do you have a do you do you have a second book in the works, or is it just sort of cogitating? I do. I have um, I have a second book, and I'm sort of just getting underway. So I'm about to begin the process all over again. <laughs> so we'll see <laughs> she says she laughs nervously like what are you getting yourself into i know no it's it's um uh, chris herring and i both finished our books at the same time and we were we were uh we're, the, the primary writing of our books at the, around the same time and we were like that was awful i can't wait to do it again i know chris is one of my best friends and we were writing ours at the same time as well and every like every day i would say i should i say morning around like midnight 1 a.m i just text him like how are we going to do this like what section are you on i mean it really helps to have friends that understand the grind <laughs> hashtag the grind somehow so, so, somehow there isn't like the, the there isn't like rise and grind for uh for book authors on instagram i hate that i even leaned into that trope this is what's wrong <laughs> we're all programmed wrong we're all sick I, i'm totally part of the culture it's bad it's bad <laughs> I mean, no, I mean, th there is something to the, the, the grind is to be celebrated in a certain way. It's just, but it's like, as soon as you put it on the gram, it's like, it's a kiss bullshit now. Like, well, that's why I don't have an Instagram and I don't, you know, I have hobbies outside of work and a life outside of work for sure. That must be nice. Um. I, I love to bake. And yeah. uh, that's a big part of my life, but like, I don't need to post about it. You know, I just want to do it. I don't want to live my life online. I know that's crazy to say as a, a journalist in 2022, but I don't want to miss out on life because I was on Twitter. Right. Right. No, that's, I mean, that, that's sort of always been the, not, not that we're not now that we're dev devolving into a counseling session at the end of the pod, right. but uh, Sorry, no, that, that, no, that's always been a, a, a challenge for me because, you know, I, I, didn't start really working in and around sports as a job until like my late thirties. So it's right. like all of a sudden my hobby became my job. So then what's right. my hobby? Like, okay, I'm done at work. Uh, let me go watch a basketball game. Right. Right. <laughs> so it's like, uh, like, where's that, where's that line? But I guess that, that, that's, that is the epitome of first word problems. So I don't want, I want to complain about that. Right. Right. We're trying to find that. We're trying to find that. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for for coming on. I've, uh, do you have anything that you you, uh, you, you want to plug or anything else you want to want to chat about before I let you go? No, I just want to say thank you for having me on, and again, congratulations on your own book. Like it's so amazing, and yeah, I'm really glad that we did this and we talked about stuff that I think really matters. You know, like the human gets lost so much. So I just appreciated this conversation. 
Well, thank you for coming on and uh, tell the folks where they can find you if they don't already know. And if you don't know, why don't you know? (laughs) Um, I'm just at Mirin Fader on Twitter, M-I-R-I-N-F-A-D-E-R. And I worked so damn hard to put my website together. So if you could visit my website at MirinFader.com, I would really appreciate it. And my paperback is coming out mid-April with the new chapter, the new epilogue. So that would really be amazing if, if people could pick that up. And uh, the audiobook as well. Uh, oh, yeah. I did the audiobook. <laughs> yeah. This, that's actually the last thing. I think I've told you this, but that was a uh, – I, I just sold the audio rights to my book, and it was an absolute deal breaker if they wanted me to read it. I was like, oh absolutely not. <laughs> it was the worst. I mean, I can't – I only said yes because it scared me. And my thing is do some do the things that scare you. So I said yes. And I didn't realize that I literally would lose my voice. I had to get a Greek speech coach um, pronouncing the Greek names over and over. I mean, it was it was so painful. But at the end of the day, like um, just receiving some feedback, you know, people appreciated that it was in my voice. I don't know. I, I listen to audiobooks and if if the if I don't like the person's voice, I immediately turn it off. So I was very uh, worried that people would immediately <laughs> turn me off. Um, so it was definitely a challenge. But yeah, listen to the audiobook because I really worked hard on that thing. <laughs> <laughs> See, I, I I had I, I had enough of, of of reading that book over and over again in my in a, in a monologue <laughs> as I was writing it, and I just I like I, as I'm starting to work on the paperback of mine, it's like. So are there any, any edits you want to make? It's like, wait, I have to read it again. And I don't want to do that. <laughs> I, I must have pronounced like the Greek last names like eight times for each person. And it wasn't, you can't just say the name. You have to say the whole sentence all over again. And then sometimes by the time you get to the name, you forget the pronunciation that you just said. And then your your throat is hurting. And I mean, it was just, it was a it's, lot of pressure. It, it's it it's a hard. scene from a, from a music movie. Yeah. Again, Re- rewind tape. Again, oh, we're. I don't know how many more takes we have left. We're running out of it. The, the 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 tape is translucent now. Um, but that's I guess that's not a digital problem, out? I suppose. But yeah. I said to them, "Is it too late to back out? Is it too late? Can you pick somebody else?" And they're like, "No, you're doing it." <laughs> All right. Well, on that note. Thank thank you so much for joining me. This was a lot of fun, and uh, hopefully, talk to you again soon. Take care.